I want you to open your Bibles to Romans, the book of Romans chapter two this morning. We're walking through a series uh, looking at the book of Romans and uh, this is week four in this series. And, and there's moments, just so you know, I scratch my head sometimes and I think, why did I do this to myself? Uh, when I taught through Leviticus, I kind of wonder, like, am I sane? Uh, Ecclesiastes. And then you come to Romans, and I kind of have a similar feeling with Romans, because Romans is really challenging. There's not a lot of churches that walk through this book because it's incredibly challenging, and it's really easy just to sort of skip around the hard stuff, but we're not doing that. We're walking through it. And uh, chapter two is really interesting uh, for me, at least to me, because there's this debate that Paul starts in chapter two. He starts this kind of argument, kind of a, an esoteric argument. He's thinking philosophically, but he's imagining the objections of people, and he's responding to their objections to what he's talking about. And so I really love it. It's like an intellectual debate. But before we get into that, I want you to imagine something with me. I want you to imagine that right now you're sitting here and you suddenly hear a, a gurgling noise in your stomach, like a noise, and you're not familiar with it. Like you're like, what is that gurgling noise? And you find yourself feeling a little weak, maybe a little lightheaded. Person next to you says something to you. You get a little irritable with them. You start wondering, what's going on with me? And then I come to you and I say, you're hungry. And you've never heard of hunger before, but you've had this feeling. And you're like, oh, that's what this is. By the way, I know this is a horrible thing to say right before lunchtime, because I just distracted you for like the next 45 minutes. You're like, I just want lunch. That's all I want. But, but I come to you, right? And I, and I tell you, and you've identified it now. And now you're, you're convinced this thing that I feel, the gurgling and the lightheadedness and the irritability, that's because I'm hungry. And so once you discover hunger, now you know what to do, right? And what are you going to do? You're going to eat, and you're going to eat everything that's in front of you, like the first thing you can get your hands on, bag of Doritos, six-pack of Mountain Dew, McDonald's cheeseburgers, doesn't matter what it is, right? You're just like, I'm hungry, I need to eat. I know it, you know it, we're just going to eat. That's what we do. Now, there, there's a reason that I'm starting this way, and it's not just to be cruel to you. Um, Paul wrote the book of Romans to essentially say to this group of people, there's this thing that you're experiencing. There's, there's this dynamic, there's this gurgling of your soul, there's this thing that's happening inside of you, and it's like a hunger, and it's a hunger for an authentic faith relationship with God. That's what's really going on with you. And so he's helping these people, and he's helping us understand this. And so we're ready to dive in. We go, okay, that's right. There's this missing component to, to my human experience. There's this missing dynamic to what it means to be a spiritual person. And, and now I know it. And so now I want to dive in. Now I want to solve it. Now uh, feed me something essentially. But when we wake up to this reality, what most of us tend to do, when we suddenly realize there's this missing component, when, we, when we're aware of this emptiness, when we open our eyes to see the resolution, we run to something, typically, that is the spiritual equivalent of Doritos and, and, and McDonald's cheeseburgers. It's actually not the food that we need. It's not real. It's not what we actually want. It's a false satisfaction. And so what is it? What is it that we suddenly wake up to? One word, religion. Religion. For most of us, when we suddenly become aware of this spiritual vacancy in our lives, we flee towards or run towards religion. And let me unpack the word religion for just a moment. The word religio is derived from two different Latin words. The word religio means, um, religio is, is the, the root word of religion. It means to constrain or sanction. 
religions, to constrain or sanction. The other word that it's built on is the word legare, and it means also to tie back or to restrain. So at the very heart of the word religion is the idea of being held back. It's being limited. It's being, it's being stunted. It's, it's being sanctioned against. That's what this word religion means. It means that at the core of religious ideas or teaching is a restrictive attitude towards human beings. That's what it means. In fact, let me just explain it this way. Religion is the development of elaborate teachings and laws, practices and habits, do's and don'ts that force us to think we must become better people. That's the heart of religion. Do better, be better, try harder, have better morals, work on your character. That's what religion is. And Paul recognizes that the default mode of our hearts, when we realize that there's some sort of spiritual need inside of us, our default mode is to gravitate towards religion. We try harder. I'm just going to try harder. I'm going to work at it. And so he writes and he shows us that religion is just as deadly as irreligion. So I want to look at chapter two. And remember, he's just finished in chapter one talking about all of the brokenness of the world, all the broken behaviors in the world, in this world that we live in, how it's messed up. And then he continues on in verse one and he says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, I would have loved to have seen the look on the faces of some of the really religious people who were reading this letter in Rome. They've probably just been agreeing with Paul in his assessment of the world and people in the world and all their messed upness in chapter one. They're, they're nodding, they're going, yeah, preach it, brother, right? You keep going. The world's broken and people are messed up. You go, go, Paul. And then Paul says, you have no excuse. And I'm sure these religious people looked at themselves, me, I don't have an excuse. And Paul says, for in passing judgment, you condemn yourself. Now, there's some trickery going on here by Paul. He's saying, listen, if, if, if you read the stuff I read in chapter one, if you hear all of this and you nod and you agree, you actually condemn yourself. The fact that you have an internal alarm that goes off, the fact that your compass points in a direction that agrees with him, the reality that something deep inside of you knows that he's right is why you're condemned. And I think a lot of the people listening to this letter the first time would have objected. No, there's no way. I'm religious. I'm religious. I'm working hard at being a good person. How can you say that I still practice these things? I'm trying hard not to practice these things. And so Paul answers the question before it can be asked. He responds to the debate of the person that says, listen, I'm doing my best. I'm working. I'm following the rules. He says, do you try hard? Well, let's talk about that. And thus begins the dialogue. Verse two, he says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Agreed. He, he, he gets them all nodding. Yep, we can all agree on that. God's judgment falls on those that practice. And so he gets them to agree like a great debater. And then in verse three, he says, do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In other words, he says, listen, 
if you judge other people and you know that these things are true, like you know how God, you say, and this is how God feels and I know it in my heart and you judge other people, then you, if you cross any sort of boundary, aren't you just as guilty? It's always interesting, by the way, how we can affirm the feelings or experiences that we have uh, about ourselves and then the, the experiences or things we see in other people, right? When it comes to ourselves, it's amazing how much grace we have and how much condemnation we have for others, right? Like when we step across the boundary, there's always this thing where it's like, well, hold on a second, but there was, you, you gotta understand the circumstances. Like I didn't just decide or I didn't just say, there was all this and we try to explain it away, right? Let me tell my story. It's complicated. Like there's some complicating details. <laughs> Paul continues and, 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 he, and he does this great debate move. Essentially he says this, he says, okay, let's assume you're right. Let's, as, let's assume you're right. Verse six he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there'll be wrath and fury. There'll be a tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. This again is some trickery on his part. He says, look, this is who God punishes. Everyone who does evil but God will give glory and honor and peace to those who don't. And the religious, the pious people who are reading go, well, that again, that's, I agree with that, right? I'm doing good. God's going to bless me. But is this good news? No. This is bad news for everybody. And here's why. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. He says the, the only ones who escape judgment are those who do the law perfectly. That's it. And so that's only good news for one kind of person perfect kinds of persons. And here's the bad news. I haven't met one yet. <laughs> I don't know any perfect people. So this is really, really bad news if you're a religious person. If you're religious, if you're constrained and you're doing all the good that you know to do, but then there's just one slip, it's over. You have to follow all the rules. Now, the objection to that would be on the other side. Someone might say, well, no, what, what if I didn't have the rules? What if I never knew the rules? What if nobody gave me a Bible or they didn't tell me any of this stuff? I never grew up in church. Then what, right? Do I, what if I don't have the law? Well, Paul has an answer for that, them as well. Verse 14, he says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What, what Paul is saying is this, when you do what's right or, or you just know what's right internally without having to have someone tell you, you confirm that there is a truth that is outside of yourself. For, for an example, um, justice. 
Why is it that you and I have a deep sense of justice? Why do we, at a very young age, we suddenly know this is how people are supposed to be treated and this is how people aren't supposed to be treated and there's this internal thing that happens where we just know what justice is, looks like? Where does that come from? No one told you that and yet you possess that. Interesting that those thoughts and feelings, what Paul is saying, they confirm the law of God. Paul says, you don't need to read it in books. You, you don't need someone to tell you to know you broke it, right? Something inside of you will tell you when you break it. If you don't have the law, it doesn't mean you're excused. You know enough already to be guilty. And by the way, I'm telling the officer who pulls you over next time, I didn't know what the speed limit was. Probably isn't going to work, right? Because you know it's not 85, right? You know that, right? Now, in the next verse, Paul turns his attention back to the religious. Verse 17, he says, If you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve, listen, listen to what he's saying. You know his will and you approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, you're a light to those who are in darkness, you're an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So basically he's building them up. You think about these things, you think this is who you are in your culture, in your family, or in your church, you think about these things. He says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Basically saying, Listen, it's great that you have the law, but you break it. You know what I know, right? No matter how hard somebody tries, eventually you fail. And you're just as guilty, Paul says, as somebody who never knew. So now we have to ask the question, well then how good is good enough, right? How good is good enough? Every kid who's trying to get into a college knows what the requirements are to get into that school. Every athlete that's trying to qualify for an event somewhere, they know what the, the minimum time standard is. Everyone that's applying for a job, they know what the requirements are for the job they're applying for. And so the question is, what is it going to take? When it comes to God, when it comes to faith, the question, if you read this, you're going to eventually ask, well, then how good is good enough? If I'm guilty without the law and I'm guilty with the law, then what does it take? How hard do I have to try? and we're asking the wrong question. The default mode of the human heart is religion. We want something to do. We wanna pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We wanna white knuckle it. That's why when you ask people, when people start talking about eternity, when they start talking about death, you, you'll oftentimes hear people just unprompted, they always say things like, well, I hope I'm, I was good enough. I hope I was good enough, right? And Paul says, listen, that's the wrong question. That's like trying to solve the hunger in your soul with McDonald's cheeseburgers. That's what religion is all about, being good enough. 
And so in the final few verses of the chapter, Paul uses an example that points to where he's going to go in the pages ahead, but it's enough to answer our question that we have today. Over the next few verses, he pulls this symbol from Jewish religiosity and uses this to make his point really clear. The, the Jews were God's people, right? They were, they were in relationship with God. And the symbol of that relationship was that every male in Judaism was circumcised. That was the symbol of God's covenant with them. So basically, you were in or you were out, or whether or not you were, you were circumcised. But it was only a symbol, right? It was a symbol outwardly of something that was happening inwardly. In our modern tradition, we would say it's like baptism, where somebody goes down into the water and they come back up, and it's representative of something that's happening on the inside. Baptism doesn't save you. It's, it's this thing that God's doing in your heart. So over time... Circumcision became this religious behavior that in the mind of the Jews, that's what made you Jewish. In other words, that's what made you one of God's children is that like you had that box checked, like, oh, circumcised, I'm one of God's children, right? So a behavior, a to-do item became the way you became a child of God. And so religiosity became deeply embedded into the life of Judaism and Jews were the people that these Christians in Rome are looking to and saying, we have this vacancy in our hearts. How do we fill this thing? What do we do with this? And so Paul rips this symbol from its religious context and he shows them how to resolve this conflict in their souls. Verse 25, he says, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Like it doesn't matter, right? So if a man who's uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So what, what is Paul saying? How do you resolve this tension? He says it's about something that's in your heart. This is not something that has to do with your behavior. It's something on the inside, not something on the outside. There's nothing that you can do. There is no list of duties. There isn't, you can't finally check the, the one box and go, finally, I've done enough good. That's not, it doesn't matter if you have the law or you don't have the law. This is a matter of the heart and what God is doing in you. And this is the difference between religion and having a relationship with God. Let me just remind you this. Jesus didn't come to establish another religion. There were plenty of them on the planet when he showed up. He came to show us something radically new and beautiful. In fact, let me just share these words of his. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Let me know if this sounds like religion to you. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Does that sound like religion? It doesn't, does it? And it isn't. And the only way 
that what we're talking about can happen in our lives, the only thing that can, that can change us, the only thing that can shape us, the only thing that can actually fill the void that's in our hearts is something we call grace. It's grace. We are transformed by the grace of God, not religion. We're shaped by the unconditional love of God and his forgiveness. We're not trying to earn his favor. We already have his favor. God's favor is already on you. He already loves you. He already accepts you. And it's the grace that he's extended to us that makes us become who we become. So we're not really hungry for religion. What we're really hungry for is what we find in the gospel. We find grace in the gospel. So I want to close by looking at at two different, a bunch of couplets, two ideas around religion and the gospel. And this is sort of a litmus test. And um, these are things that I wrote down years ago uh, in, a, in a time with a mentor years ago. And, and I've just held on to these throughout the years to remind myself. But just contrasting religion and the gospel. Just think about your perspective as we read these things. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Religion says motivation is based on fear and insecurity. The gospel says motivation is based on grateful joy. Religion says, I obey God in order to get things from God. The gospel says, I obey God to delight and resemble him. Religion says when circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm angry at God or myself since I believe, like Job's friends, that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. The gospel says when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle, but I know all my punishment fell on Jesus and that while he may allow this for my training, he will exercise his love within my trial. Religion says when I'm criticized, I'm furious or devastated because it's critical that I think of myself as a good person. Threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all costs. The gospel says when I'm criticized, I can take it. I struggle, but it's not critical for me to think of myself as a good person. My identity is not built on my record or my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ. Religion says my prayer life consists largely of petition and only heats up when I'm in a time of need. My main purpose in prayer is control of my environment. The gospel says my prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration. My main purpose is fellowship with God. That one got me this week, by the way. Religion says my self-view swings between two poles. If and when I'm living up to my standards, I feel confident, but then I'm prone to be proud and unsympathetic to failing people. If and when I'm not living up to standards, I feel insecure, inadequate, and not confident. I feel like a failure. The gospel says my self-view is not based on a view of myself as a moral achiever. In Christ, I know I'm simultaneously sinful and yet accepted in him. I'm so bad that he had to die for me, and I'm so loved he was glad to die for me. This leads me to deeper and deeper humility and confidence at the same time. 
Religion says my identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am. And so I must look down on those I perceive as lazy or immoral. I disdain and feel superior to others. The gospel says my identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for his enemies and who was excluded for me. I'm saved by sheer grace. So I can't look down on those who believe or practice something different from me. It's only by grace that I am what I am. I have no inner need to win arguments. Religion says, since I look to my own pedigree or performance for my spiritual acceptability, my heart manufactures idols. It may be my talents, my moral record, my personal discipline, my social status. I absolutely have to have them so that they serve as my main hope, meaning, happiness, security, and significance, regardless of what I say I believe about God. The gospel says, I have many good things in my life. Family, work, spiritual disciplines, But none of these good things is an ultimate end for me. None of them is something I absolutely have to have. So there is a limit to how much anxiety, bitterness, and despondency such things can inflict on me when they are threatened and lost. Paul hears about this group of people in Rome and he hears about the hunger that's in their souls. And he knows the tendency, they're going to run to religion. And so he says, no, no. It's not about what you can or can't do. It's about grace. It's about you coming to the acknowledgement that you are who you are and you are where you are only because of God's grace He loved you and he continues to love you. He's accepted you and he continues to accept you. He forgave you and he continues to forgive you. And it's only in that place where we acknowledge the grace of God that that transforming work of our souls, our inner being begins to really take place. Experiencing that grace is as simple as saying yes to Jesus. Do you want what he offers you? That light burden, that gift of grace. It's simply saying, yes, I want to follow you. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? I want to offer the benediction. If you're open to holding your hands out to receive it, I pray this over you. May you experience the tangible, life-transforming love of God. May his grace in your life be so evident and so powerful that you become a person who carries a light load and lives with joy and peace and life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys so much. Thanks for being here today. We'll see you guys next Sunday.